When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through global dining access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, April 3rd, 2023, and I'm the host of the show. Cara Santa Maria. And before we dive into this week's episode, I do want to thank all of you who make Talk Nerdy possible. Remember, Talk Nerdy is and will always be 100% free to download. And in order to make that happen, I rely on the support of listeners just like you. This week's top supporters include Daniel Lang, David J.E. Smith, Mary Neva, Brian Holden, David Compton, Gabrielle F. Jaramillo, Joe Wilkinson, Pasquale Gelati, and Ulrika Hagman. If you would like to pledge your support on an episodic basis, all you've got to do is visit patreon.com slash talknerdy. All right, let's dive into this week's episode. I had the opportunity to speak with the brilliant author of the new book, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. Her name is Dr. Nita Farahani. She is a professor of both law and philosophy at Duke Law School. She's the founding director of Duke Science and Society, the faculty chair of the Duke MA in Bioethics and Science Policy, and principal investigator of the SLAP Lab, and that's SLAP for Science, Law, and Policy Lab. So without any further ado... Here she is, Dr. Nita Farahani. Well, Nita, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I am excited to talk about your new book. And okay, so it's called The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. There's so much to unpack here. And I think in order for us to really understand a book of this nature, why you wrote a book of this nature, we have to understand you. Um, And you are like your wow, right? So you, (laughs) from an ethics perspective, from a legal perspective, from an academic perspective, from a biological perspective, I I mean, you have worn so many different hats and figured out how to integrate to become a multidisciplinary um, thinker. So I'm just curious about the evolution of your work. So I um, would say my academic work has always been at the heart of all of those things, which is philosophy and uh, biology and neuroscience and um, emerging technologies and law. But, you know, my evolution as a thinker started as somebody first who was really excited about science and technology. So um, as a kid, was just fascinated by science and went to college thinking if you're fascinated by science, that means you're going to be pre-med because what else do you do? <laughs> um, and so I was pre-med and I went through all of the painful pre-med classes. But, you know, I found myself every time I needed to do an internship or something for the med school side of things, really gravitating toward policy. And um, the other side of me was I came to college as a policy debater and was recruited as a policy debater. And 
So I ended up taking a bunch of classes in government and international relations. And finally, by the time I went on my med school interviews and, you know, passed out at the site of the cadavers when the <laughs> med students took me to see them, you know, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to push pause here and I'm going to go and try to figure out if there's some other way to do science without actually being in medical school. And so I went into strategy consulting and focused on biotech and, you know, kind of future forecasting of, um, you know, the biotech industry and other technologies and really interested in that, you know, gave me a lot of great skills and tools, but found that I missed the academic side of things and, you know, business wasn't quite quite the right fit. So I I went back to school and I, I got a JD and an MA and a PhD and, the combination of those things, I thought I would maybe go practice intellectual property law because, again, within law, I was like, what do you do with all that science interest? And and then academia came calling. And that was clearly my natural calling. I just didn't realize it to begin with. And it's been the perfect place in which I can combine all of those things. I have to say, I just love how you, I feel like this was like a, a you know, South Park underwear, pan, uh, underwear gnome, like, <laughs> like moment where you're like, and then I just, you know, I went back to school and I got like, you know, a PhD and a master's degree. And, like, and I was like, oh yeah, oh, you, that just happened over Yeah, no, it just happened. It just happened. I mean, anyway, like, and honestly, it sort of did just happen that way, um, which is, uh, which is kind of funny, but I was like, okay, well, I guess while I'm here, I might as well do this too. Um, the PhD is is that way where I, I came in as a, a, a combined JDMA student. And at the end of my first year of the program, I had to propose my master's thesis. And my advisor was like, this is so interesting, but this is not a master's thesis. This is a dissertation. But, you know, that's the hard part is a lot of people have a very hard time figuring out what they're going to write their dissertation about. So maybe you should just apply to the PhD program. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I guess I'll just apply to the PhD program. And and the rest is history, but that's not normally how people go about these things. Right, <laughs> and right. So, but uh, you know, I, I'd say at the end of the day, what it really was was me just following my passion. It was, you know, this is the thing that I'm interested in, and trying to figure out how to do that and and where that would fit into the world. Well, and and the funny thing is that's how it's supposed to be, right? That's like ultimately what what academia historically was. It was, I have interesting questions about the world. I want to utilize the tools of the institution to be able to investigate and interrogate these questions and contribute to to knowledge. But that's not always how, you know, very often people end up being stuck in their professor, you know, some small portion of a project that's somebody else's idea. And then, and so I feel like in some ways, I really relate to you because I'm lucky enough that I've gone to a lot of sort of non-traditional schools where I could ask the questions I want to ask and I and just find the support to help answer them as opposed to basically just doing a, the legwork for somebody else. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'd say we both then sit in, you know, kind of extraordinary positions of privilege and being able to do so, right? Because um, to, to get to be in a position where you can really explore ideas that you're passionate about and try to figure out a way to do so and and to do so in ways that break conventional norms, because, you know, one of the hard things for me and for you, I um, assume, is that when you're coming at things from a multidisciplinary perspective, it, you know, you, you have to break down disciplinary boundaries. And that could be everything as simple as, you know, the schedules don't align between different departments and different right. schools to... Or they don't speak the same language. They don't speak the same language and you're serving as a translator or what what you might get credit for in one field, you wouldn't get credit for in another field as you're, you know, kind of on the road to academic advancement. So I've been really fortunate in um, the fact that 
where I have landed as a place that celebrates interdisciplinary scholarship and, you know, gives me the support and um, the advancement opportunities to be able to do so, but also to be at a, you know, great institution where there are colleagues that I can, you know, shout across the, you know, bow and say like, hey, I, I don't understand this issue. This is not quite my field, but it's something I want to draw from. You know, can we sit down and chat about it? And and they will. They'll sit down with me. And my book is full of that. There's so many great colleagues that I sat down with across so many different disciplines across the world and just said like, hey, I, you know, I don't get this, but it seems really important. Can you explain it to me? And people would patiently explain it to me and, and walk me through it in ways that would help me, you know, interrogate it and find how it fit into the bigger picture of what I was writing about and interested in. Right. So, so how does that actually translate into like, I don't know. I don't want to make it so simple and and you know denigrate it to say like well well how do you make money but like how does that translate <laughs> into like what you do now yeah. because obviously yeah. you're no longer a student there comes a time where you have to like to do and so I'm yes. curious what yeah. is it that you do I mean what is it that I don't do is a better question <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so um so I mean first and foremost. I'm an academic, so I'm a professor at Duke University, uh, where I am a professor of law and philosophy. I teach classes in the law school, also at the undergraduate setting, but I also, for half of my time, run an initiative at Duke called the Duke Initiative for Science and Society, which is uh, one of these weird interdisciplinary units that sits um, outside of the schools and outside of the departments and spans across them. And we have our own master's program and our own undergraduate certificate programs and our own faculty um, and that has given me the space to innovate a lot around the issues that I'm interested in. So I manage that. I build programs around that. I build and bring in speaker series and educational programs for students in that space. And then I write, um, you know, in this kind of multidisciplinary side of things, whether it's in law or nature or in, um, you know, Scientific American or in the LA Times or, you know, kind of wherever it is, I'm, I'm writing across a lot of different domains for wherever the right pieces are. And then I serve in a lot of external to my academic position positions. So I sit, you know, for a number of years, I was on President Obama's Bioethics Commission. Um, I sit on, uh, you know, National Academies, uh, different standing committees and planning committees and workshop committees. I am an elected member of the American Law Institute and appointed member of the Uniform Laws Commission. And so I, I engage in these different, um, both non-governmental, governmental, and then even corporate bodies where I sit on ethics advisory boards um, and scientific advisory boards for companies and do private consulting for companies about the development of ethical technology. So I, I wear a lot of different hats. Um, and that's one of, I think, the extraordinary things about being an academic is that you can have many different jobs at once. <laughs> right. I think that I've always loved that about academia and about and about certain professions within academia. I mean, I think it's part of why I went back to school to study clinical psychology, because like you don't have to do just one thing. You get to be, I mean, you're not like I've always been freelance. So I'm like, how can I get as close to being freelance as possible? You know, but like actually have a little more security in my life. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what a PhD affords you very often. Um but so it, 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 you know, obviously I'm hearing these these terms that resonate with me that I sort of think I understand as, as, as another academic, like bioethics. But of course, these are really broad things. And so I'm curious, clearly there's got to be stuff. There's got to be ethical questions, specifically, you know, like legal implications that 
you know, you're called to task to answer questions about a lot of different topics, but there's got to be something or or a cluster of things or a, a focal point where you're like, this is the sweet spot for me. This is what I absolutely love. So where do you like to grapple? Where do you like to spend time in the nuance and the gray area? I like new stuff. Oh, <laughs> and I say right, that. So like um, emerging stuff. Yeah. And, and I say that because, you know, emerging stuff uh, that pushes the boundaries of what it means to be human or pushes the boundaries of what it means to be an animal or um, what the welfare interest of different entities are or questions about consciousness and um, lack of consciousness or, uh, you know, issues about uh, whether there are boundaries that, you know, are too, too far to, to cross. The, these like the, the more cutting edge the technology, particularly in areas of genetics, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence, the more interesting I find it because there the, the gray areas are the hardest and it allows you to draw from a lot of existing experience, a lot of existing problems. Um, you know, there are new problems, but there are many new problems that touch on many old issues that have well trodden paths to them. And so I, I like I like seeing what the gray areas that are opened up. And I and I think I thrive and and probably am the most helpful societally in thinking about those bleeding edge issues and how to uh, work through them for a pathway ahead. Right. Okay. And so, you know, looking at your body of not just the work that you actively engage in, but the work that like the documented work, obviously you've got your academic publications, but like you said, you do all sorts of like media. You've done a ton of interviews, you know, a lot of like video and television speaking events, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. This is your first book. Mm -hmm. So that's a thing, right? Sitting down yeah. to, oh, to yeah. write yeah. all of this stuff down, try and figure out what goes Quite in it, what thing. doesn't yeah. go in it. So talk to me a little bit before we start to talk about the, the actual content. Talk to me a little bit about that process. Why was neurotechnology the focus that you really chose? Um, and of course, it's got this like strong kind of ethical bent, but like, how did you, how did you choose this path for the book? So it really traces back more than a decade of thinking about these issues. And so um, I came to law school with a question of how is behavioral genetics and neuroscience challenging our existing concepts of responsibility and free will in the criminal justice system? Um, and I came to law school with that very specific question because I had taken as a uh, work for a prior master's degree uh, a class on behavioral genetics that had this chapter that really dove into the study of genetic contributions to criminal behavior, most of which have been debunked by now. Um, but the, it was fascinating to me, like, oh, this is a very different intersection with things that I'm interested in. And so I, I came to law school saying, like, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I, I want to study this. My first day of criminal law, I went up to my professor after class and I was like, hey, so I'm here because I really want to write about this and think about this. And he was like, okay, cool. Like, why don't we get through the first semester of class? <laughs> <He's> <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Let's yep. walk before you run. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, but he was great. I mean, he became a mentor of mine and even later, you know, co-edited a volume on, on the impact of behavioral sciences on the criminal law the year after I graduated from, from law school. So he's, he stayed true as a mentor through all of that. But, you know, I think he was sort of like, who is this kid who is like first day of class? But in that, 
early work, what I was looking at is the ways in which criminal defendants were coming into the courtroom and saying, you know, don't blame me, blame my brain, blame my genes. And, um, and as I, you know, did a lot of empirical work on that, looking at all of the cases and the um, different studies that defendants were bringing into the courtroom. So neuroimaging studies, functional magnetic resonance imaging, EEG, um, SPECT analysis, PET scans, you know, I, I became really interested in the neurotechnologies themselves and what they could actually reveal about brain and function and, um, you know, kind of deeper philosophical questions because I was getting my PhD in philosophy at, at the time too. And so I was, I was wondering like, how much can you really decode from the brain? And there were some early applications at that point by companies that were pushing the envelope of, uh, you know, what you could actually do scientifically, which was, um, you know, uh, there, there was like a company called No Lie MRI and Cephos. And they were promising to offer lie detection, like brain-based lie detection, um, where you could interrogate a person's brain to figure out if they were telling the truth or lying. And, you know, again, to be a science, but um, it was re like that opened up the possibilities to me of like, wow, what are all the ways in which this could really intersect with the legal system? And what would be the legal implications of using these technologies in that setting? And that then just kind of led me down the rabbit hole of asking questions about neurotechnologies in general and starting to follow it and follow the field much more carefully. And eventually getting to the place where I was like, you know what, we need a kind of holistic way to think about this because I wrote a series of academic articles seeing that there were a lot of gaps in the law in how we would really treat people whose brains had been interrogated for various purposes. Um, and as, you know, the brain sort of was becoming more transparent through these technologies, I, I wanted to write a, a bigger book. And then over time, it, it, it became much more than that. You know, it became about like all of the ways in which our brains and mental experiences can be accessed and changed and thinking about it from a much more holistic perspective of, you know, what are the set of rights that we need as a updated concept of liberty in an era where our brains can be hacked and tracked, whether it's from neurotechnology or, you know, from... Uh, social media companies or AI or uh, any of the different ways that, you know, emerging neuroscience teaches how, you know, companies or governments can really hack into our cognitive biases and heuristics to make us behave in particular ways. So that's, you know, the kind of longer backstory. And then, you know, there was kind of like an aha moment when I was like, I got to sit down and start writing this book. But we can talk about that if you want. <laughs> right. I mean, I I'm curious about since because you sort of teased it a little bit. Obviously, we talked about the the early formation. Um, let's let's skip ahead. The book is published. It's out. You were figuring out as you're working with your editors and you're working with their publishers, like, you know, how do we close it? How do we put a button on it? You did all of this research. Some of this stuff had already been percolating in your head. A lot of it you were discovering, you know, throughout the process, just like any good sort of writer does. When you walked, I mean, you haven't really walked away, but when you, you know, when you were done and you were able to be like, yes, it's printed um, and now I'm going to go and do press about this, you know, what was that sort of, um, that takeaway for you? You know, can we protect ourselves? Are there, I mean, obviously they're clear and, and present things that we can be doing, but is there kind of a, uh, we got to stay on top of this because no matter how hard we try, we're always going to be a little bit vulnerable. 
A little bit of both, right? So I think, um, you know, what I've proposed in the book is something I call the right to cognitive liberty. And um, this is a term that other people have used over time and um, have, you know, kind of come at it in different ways. But this book was really uh, an attempt to give a really strong normative and philosophical and legal foundation to that concept and to explain how in this digital age, um, what is an updated understanding of liberty and how might that apply? Um, and liberty is violated all the time, even today, right? We have very strong protections for liberty, but people, you know, uh, violate people's liberties. And uh, having laws and having protections against it doesn't mean that there are never encroachments upon it, but there are at least safeguards and remedies that exist for when that happens. Um, right now, there's a big gaping hole around really different technologies like neurotechnologies that can enable decoding a lot of what a person is feeling or or thinking. Um, there are big gaps around the kind of manipulative techniques that are applied to change our brains and mental experiences. And there's even frightening attempts to um, weaponize and to try to assault the brain, whether that's through influence campaigns. You know, there's all of this anxiety about TikTok and what it's doing and what it's doing to young brains or social media and how it's shaping and reshaping adolescents. Um, right, and but, how much of that is like a passive sort of evolve, organic evolving thing that's self-regulated and how much of that is like a targeted, intentional kind of nefarious yeah, campaign. Yeah. which matters for how we'll think mm -hmm. about it, right? And yeah. so um, so what I, what I came to believe is that, you know, we have a moment where, you know, there, we're already well into the digital age. There's already plenty of ways in which our brains and mental experiences are being shaped and reshaped, assault, attacked empowered in some ways too, um, we need to recognize now, right, to cognitive liberty that before we take this last step, as I see it, the step to actually applying sensors um, to our, you know, foreheads and wrists and behind our ears and inside of our ears and around our ears that pick up our brain activity and give much more direct access to brain activity to corporations and governments and even to ourselves, we need to put into place rights for individuals to self-determination and mental privacy and freedom of thought that give them protections. Will it stop every authoritarian actor from doing bad things? No, um, but it will create a strong global legal approach as well as norms so that when that happens, when people violate those rights, at least there is an international response that can occur. At least there are rights and remedies in place. At least the terms of service favor individuals. So I have a question, and it's going to be a little bit like philosophical. So I don't know. You'll be fine. Bear I can with take me, it. Obviously. I can take it. Yeah. yeah. No, you, okay. you can. You can like probably turn it around and crush me with it. But I'm okay. I, my listen. The listeners may or may not. I don't know. I'm just. I'm following a thought that I have that is going to play out in real time. Um, uh -oh. <laughs> so <laughs> I know this is dangerous. <laughs> Get ready. Um, thinking about these concepts that are like, the stakes are, are high. They are practical. They are real world. You know, this is not, these are not thought experiments. They have real implications. And at the same time, there is something I, I've noticed that your um, descriptions and your verbalizations have almost been brilliantly apolitical. 
Yet there's something almost necessarily political about the nature of these conversations, whether we're talking about a moral uh, grappling, whether we're talking about right versus wrong, whether we're talking about uh, liberties and freedoms versus protections. And I'm just curious if your approach has been a more Heideggerian, I will make my biases explicit and own them. And this is just where I'm coming from because I am a human being and I have my own personal ideologies or whether you're taking more of like, I guess, a Husserl's approach, which is like, I will try to be apolitical and I will try to put my biases on the shelf. I can work really hard to try to not have them. Like, how do you go about talking about this stuff in such a charged political environment? So first, I would say, you know, in the battle for your brain, I take positions, and they're not positions that everybody would agree with. And some of them, um, you know, people will disagree with, and I invite them to disagree with them, right? I I don't claim to have all of the right answers. Um, When I sat on the President's Commission for Bioethics from 2010 to 2017, I remember my first meeting the president of the commission was then president of University of Pennsylvania, Amy Gutman. And she is um, just a extraordinarily thoughtful and really powerful leader in so many ways. She turns to me, I was the youngest person on the commission by a lot at that point. And um, there's 13 of us. And she asked the question, you know, what do you think, Nita? I say, well, that's a really good and hard question. And, you know, on the one hand, X, and on the other hand, Y. And she's like, uh-huh. And what do you think? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, it was the first moment really where I went from being just a traditional academic that was able to say, like, that's a really good and hard question <laughs> to realizing, you know, the stakes are high. I need to actually have an opinion. And right. I'm in a position where I'm being asked to provide pragmatic and actual recommendations and solutions to the president of the United States. I I need to have an opinion and I need to figure out where I come out on these issues. And so I do, I come out on issues in the battle for your brain, um, some of which, you know, will, some people will like and some people will hate. uh, But I don't think it aligns politically, you know, in, in the kind of conservative, liberal, traditional breakdown. And you find right, that which is true. which is arbitrarily binary, isn't it? It is. It is. And I, I would say you find that to be true, I think, with a lot of issues that are at the intersection of ethics and um and technology is that well, and science. And science, yeah. Yeah. Is is that you don't end up with people aligning with the same bedfellows they might otherwise align with. And I have this like I, I don't know, this optimism that's Everybody cares about their brains and mental experiences and that it is an apolitical issue that everybody should actually want to have a right to cognitive liberty. So I, I, for some, you know, naive, I hope is not the right word, reason, I have this belief that this is actually something that we could really come together societally, that we, we won't face the same fracturing, at least when it comes to this issue, as we do with so many other issues. But again, that could be naivete. (laughs) When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through Global Dining Access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express Card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. There's a part of me that's like, well, duh, right? Like, there's a part of me that that is like, okay, we could probably all get behind, like, we don't want to be hit by asteroids, so we need to have a scientific, you know, committee or or branch of NASA who, which we do, right, who specifically focuses on that. But then you watch, but then the people movie, think like, that that's like too far out, right? They they don't like they don't personalize it to themselves. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so. Th- th- it's almost like more esoteric. Get, yeah. And the more, I mean, you can, more you can be like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like I'm talking about every workplace having brain sensors that are monitoring employees' brain activity while they are working. Like that that could be you, right? right. And, and, and suddenly think, people are like, wait a minute, wh- what? My earbuds and my headphones are going to have brain sensors that somebody else can read and detect? Like, I mean, how do I think about that? So... Right. And and I think that, the, you know, we're living in a world now where we at least have that taste, right? So, like, the, the reference to sort of the asteroids, the thing that worries me is, like, then you watch movies like Don't Look Up, and it's like, somehow that was politicized, right? Somehow there was, like, a denialistic kind of uh, faction that became very, very dangerous. And so, like, that worries me, because even as, as sort of... Um, hopeful as we can be, I do have this like cynical streak in me that I try not to fall into. But but then you also kind of, on the other hand, the, the thing that you made mention of, I think people at least, you know, you were talking about, oh, at the workplace and there are these sensors and, you know, that also sounds really far out, even though it's not. And I think that, you know, t- television shows like Black Mirror and different sort of dystopian, um, uh, entertainment grapplings with these kinds of futures have brought it to people's attention in a way that makes it feel more tangible as, you know, ex machina, like those types of approaches, because otherwise this may feel esoteric to people. Like, how do you, how do you get to them and convince them like, no, this is an actual real threat? So my book, I think, clobbers people with examples. <laughs> right, right, okay, right. Um, and like real and, examples. And real examples. Yeah. So, you know, what I have to just keep reminding people as I talk with them is um, I'm not painting a picture of the future. I'm talking about technology that has already arrived, that's an already of thousands of workplaces worldwide that is already being used by government officials to interrogate people about crimes, that is already being developed for functional biometrics to validate and authenticate people, 
that is already being used by people to empower themselves to focus and meditate and to access their own brain activity. It's just a question of scale, right? So all of that's already here. It's just that all of the major tech companies now have invested to embed those same brain sensors in better form factors and earbuds and headphones and watches and little tattoos that can be worn behind the ear. And they're launching those products to make them mass market products rather than smaller niche products. And so, you know, we have the seconds before that happens. We've got, you know, about a year, I think, before most of the products really hit the mainstream. And so we have this moment to get it right. And when I help people with the examples over and over and over again in the book to say, like, here's all of what's already here, and here's all of the major tech companies' products that are launching, here's what they've said about when those products are launching and how they're going to be integrated into your devices, I think people start to understand, like, this is not, this is not, you know, another science fiction movie. This is actually, this has arrived. And the question is just, are we going to get out ahead of it or not? Right. And and what does it actually mean to get out ahead of it? I think the thing that worries me most, and this is again my a bit of my cynicism coming up. And I think very often when we have deep ethical conversations about these things, and maybe not so much in a structured and um like you know, not at the highest levels of government, not within these like boards within corporations, but everyday people having conversations about what they want their own life to look like. I think that when it comes to things like privacy, we're very often talking about government oversight and um, government manipulation and all of the fears, right? I mean, you you mentioned the word liberty. I mean, that sort of like fundament, and you mentioned, uh, you know, dictators are bad actors. Those are the things that come to mind. And don't get me wrong, I read 1984, those things come to mind for me as well. It scares the crap out of me. But do you know what scares me more is just like advertising and marketing, just like the capitalist draw to get my data. And I feel like we don't, yes, we talk about it, but for some reason, I don't feel like people are that scared of it. And maybe it's because it's been so normalized. You know, we have a whole generation of people who just like grew up where their data is a part of their currency. But I don't know, man, to me, that is way more dystopian. Well, you know, the great thing about that is we share that dystopia. (laughs) And and part of the reason I wrote the book the way that I did is, um, you know, I, I, I break it up into chapters that deal with the ways in which corporations are commodifying brain data and that they will, whether it's from the employment setting or for the use of neuromarketing or the use of um, different technologies to kind of get into and understand the brain and addict us. Uh, to technologies and platforms that have us habitually coming back to them over and over again. Real examples of commodification of brain data that has already started to happen as some of the devices that have been gathering brain data from people using the sensors have sold it to other companies, how those companies are using it already to mine it and to sell it to employers for surveillance and oversight of employees and you know to figure out all kinds of things um, about employees and about people. So I worry exactly the same way that you do, that um, if we don't mind what's happening, that what's going to happen is that our brain data is going to be commodified just like all the rest of our brain data. And yet it is so much more sensitive. It is, you know, so much more personal that what can be inferred from it, not in every case, right? There are some cases in which, you know, the aggregation of your psychogenic profile from everything else that you are freely giving away gives plenty away already. 
But there is this bit that you hold back that you don't express in your written communications and your GPS location and your financial transactions and your searches on search engines and your social media likes and, you know, other expressions of yourself. And that little bit that you hold back can be decoded through the brain sensors, not all of it, but enough of it that we should be deeply concerned about the commodification and misuse of that data by corporations and by governments, right? But the right, corporate course, part is going to touch all of us. Um, and the government is only going to touch, you know, the people that are seen as hostile or seen <gasps> Maybe, as threatening. Maybe, right? Or, I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's control, right? So it is much more of either an aggregate or individual, you know, I don't want to say bad actors because that's a completely... Um, yeah. Subjective. I mean, term. It, like we can worry <laughs> yeah. about we can we can other that in some ways, right? We can be like, okay, well, yeah, here right? in the United <laughs> States, like I'm I'm not a I'm not in an authoritarian regime or I didn't commit a crime, so I'm not gonna be interrogated in a criminal, you know, suspect room or I'm not traveling abroad and so my brain biometrics aren't gonna be tested. But we can't do that when we're talking about you know, using brain sensors to interact with all the rest of our technology, which is how these devices are being deployed, right? They're they're being used as the way that you control AR and VR eventually to be able to type by thinking about it, to swipe by thinking about it rather than using a mouse and a keyboard. And as that, like as your brain becomes the way you interact with other technology, that means all of that data is being gathered all of the time and can be commodified and misused and abused and you can be discriminated against and hired and fired and you know, micro-targeted with advertisements and, you know, all kinds of things that should make people deeply uncomfortable when it comes to the inner sanctum, the part of them that should be the most private, the part that should be their kind of last fortress of self. Right. I mean, it's it's like I keep going back to this. I, I, there's a couple of ways that maybe I'm oversimplifying this big question, but what I'm hearing you, from you is that so much of our metrics, so much of our data right now, this is sort of, quote, big data conversation, and so much of, like, predictive sort of, um, wh whether we're talking about governing or policing or whether we're talking about marketing or, you know, just different kind of capitalist efforts, is based on our behavior. And we're, we're sort of using behavior to infer thought. But there's going to be a watershed moment in which, like, we no longer have to infer thought because in some ways, not like you mentioned, not in all ways, but in some ways, we'll be able to just measure thought. And that's that's dystopian AF. But then you add to that, right, this conversation of uh, privacy versus convenience. And you go, well, but there are places and times, you know, I think about a, a person with ALS who, who can just think what they want to say and then the computer tells, it's like, that's amazing. Of course we want that. We don't ever want to prevent, you know, this service from being available to somebody who has this disability. And yet at the same time, how much of our privacy are willing to give up for convenience? And at what point can we not put the genie back in the bottle? Because again, you made this point, and I think it bears repeating, just because something can't, wait, if you build a system in which something can happen, it's, it's an easy, thin veneer to operate under the assumption that it won't simply because there's regulation in place. Somebody will figure out how to make it happen. If it can happen, by definition, it will happen in some situations. Yeah. Now I wonder, does AF violate your rating? 
<laughs> no, not at all. Right? <laughs> no um, rating if you say AF. All, all right, good. Excellent, Get excellent. <laughs> no, I mean, look, like it is scary AF, right? That yeah, right. Um, that this like this final frontier could be breached, and it's going to be a distance between here and where like our full inner monologues can be decoded, at least with wearable neurotechnology. Implanted neurotechnology is going to get a lot closer to that, but. You know, there are still plenty that you can discover from brain states, from emotional response, boredom, engagement, attention, mind wandering. You can probe the brain for recognition by having something in the environment around you, right? So you have a computer screen that you're interacting with and, you know, without your conscious perception of it, there are a string of numbers that are put up that your brain signals recognition of to figure out what your PIN number is um, or your home address or your political persuasion by figuring out what your emotional reaction is to different images of different political candidates or different messaging to figure out your likelihood of voting or which way you're likely to vote. There's so many ways that the brain can be intercepted with brain sensors and with bad actors. And that's different than the more distant inferences that are being made through your behaviors. Um, and again, sometimes your behaviors are going to be more revealing than the data itself that you get from brain sensors, but a lot of times it's not. Um, and there is that information that up until now was just inaccessible to others that suddenly will be accessible. And I just, I don't think people realize it. I don't think they're thinking about it. And that really is the biggest motivation for me writing The Battle for Your Brain is to help people just start to recognize what's already here, how little time we have left to get out ahead of it, and the optimism that we can if we make the right choices now. Right. And I guess the question is also the 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 risk-benefit analysis, you know, because I think we can hear, we can be easily convinced of so many things, you know, that's what marketing is so good at, right? That's what persuasion, you know, social psychology is so good at, is like, there are legitimate, and I guess I'm making a, a, a moral judgment here, I'm making, you know, I'm there, there's a, a emotional valence to this, but there are legitimate beneficial like to humanity uses for this kind of technology and at the same time there's a deeply nefarious underbelly and i mean you can point to a lot of things cryptocurrency dark web you know like good things can come from anonymity and horrific things can come from anonymity and and so you know you've got that empowering side of the coin and that abusive side of the coin and how do you do these risk benefit analyses risk benefit of analysis between adopting the technology and um, not or well, basically, just like yeah, when you look at these different technologies, you're able to see the deeply beneficial outcomes. You know, somebody can make a beautiful case for you know the 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 things that actually really do improve public health, for example, or improve safety. And then you've got the dark underbelly. You know, there are empowering things that are equivalently uh, abuse, like capable of abuse. What so, do you do I mean, with so that? for me personally, part of the bundle of rights that I think is included within cognitive liberty is the right to self-determination. And that means putting the locus of decision-making about that risk-benefit in the hands of individuals, letting them decide for themselves whether the risks outweigh the benefits or the benefits outweigh the risk. And there are a lot of benefits, right? So to be clear, um, 
you know, you know better than most that uh, our our neurological health, our brain health and well-being is getting worse while overall physical health is improving and longevity is improving. And given that, part of what I think drives that is how inaccessible our own brains are to ourselves. Um, and the ability to actually be able to like visualize brain activity, whether that's your stress levels or, um, you know, that you are uh, more tired and, you know, after not getting a good night of sleep or what the effect of your ability to focus over time looks like when you've had a hard night out of drinking alcohol or any number of things that affect your brain activity and functioning, how well you do after you exercise, what that looks like over a prolonged period of time. All of these things affect our brains and mental experiences, and yet they are inaccessible to us right now. We track our steps that we take, uh, our heart rate, our blood pressure, um, even temperature and sleep patterns through different wearable devices. And the idea that our brains are somehow off limit to ourselves, to me, means that we're not prioritizing our brains and our access to brains and our ability to enhance and change our brains or even just improve our brain health the way we are everything else. So I think that promise is going to drive a lot of people to want to use the technology, but I don't think globally we can make that choice as to the risk benefit. I think it has to be up to individuals to make the choice about given whatever the opportunities are that are presented by the technology, whether it's to improve brain health or access or be able to operate, you know, a video game with their mind or type more efficiently or, um, you know, operate inside of a virtual reality setting more seamlessly, individuals should get to choose whether those benefits are sufficient, recognizing that there are risks. And those risks are opening up their brains to corporate commodification, to government um, use, to government subpoenas. You know, there's a whole host of risks. And so people need to be fully informed of those. That's part of what the battle of the brain tries to do is to help people really go into those decisions wide-eyed and understanding what the risk-benefit is so that they can make the choices for themselves through their right to self-determination. So what about, you know, and this this may feel like a pushback, but really it's, I think, a, it's a kind of a, a naive question, but what about the, the situation in which not participating and not opting in literally means not being a part of society, a functional society. And I think we see that to some extent with certain types of technologies today, right? Because we can talk about the sort of Black Mirror episode where it's either you get the grain or you don't get the grain. And so you have the implant or you don't have the implant. And they're the people who did it, the people who didn't. Or like, you know, the show Severance, like the people who got severed and the people who didn't. And then they have their own kind of new reality. But you know, we've all kind of met people who are like, I don't have a, I don't like shop online or I don't have social media or there become even bigger parts where it's like, I don't want to check the box next to the terms and conditions and opt in for my Apple products, which basically means I can't do that job or I can't, I can't, you know, uh, participate in e-commerce. And at a certain point, you're like living on a commune. Like at what point, are we going to feel so much pressure that we don't have our individual liberties anymore because to be a functional human being in an evolving world means to opt in? Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. And part of what I've argued for is that we can't condition access to services uh, in exchange for brain data. 
Like that's that's just that has been the default to date, which is like, oh, that's fine. You you don't want to accept our terms of service, then you just don't use our products. I it, it can't be that like I can't use my computer unless I opt in to giving my brain data to Apple. Like that just you can't link those two things together. And except that we, they are linked. Well, no, I mean, maybe not, not the yet, brain data, but right? but like the behavior, no, no, the, right? Yeah, the, the rest of it is, but that doesn't right. mean we have to make the same choices when it comes to the brain. We can True. have a different set of terms of service and we can do that by saying the right to cognitive liberty means you don't get to condition access to anything in exchange for brain data, right? That that is data that belongs to the individual, that they have a right to keep private, that they do not have to barter in exchange for access to your service. Um, that it just can't be the way we do it this time. And I think people are so accustomed to it being the default rule that it just didn't occur to them that it doesn't have to be that way. You know, we can decide oh, yeah. otherwise. I and think we legit we have learned helplessness. Like we yes. literally think we're disempowered. Yes, um, and I we're, mean, not. Because, because, we're not. You know, <laughs> in some ways we have been, but we don't have to be. Right. And so what does that look like though? I mean, obviously that looks like government regulation. Well, but- it looks like, I mean, it looks like updating our existing human rights to include a right to cognitive liberty, which directs the mm-hmm. updating of privacy to include mental privacy, freedom of thought to extend beyond belief in religion to pertain to thoughts and the manipulation and punishment for our thoughts, and the right to self-determination, which includes both the right to be able to access information about our own brains, to be able to enhance or change them or do none of those things at all if that's what we want to do, and to have control over our own brain data. Um, And those rights both codified as part of international human rights, then trickled down and direct that signatories to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is most countries, have to then, you know, if, if a company wants to get your brain data, they're going to have to somehow seek a legal exception to do so. It's not the default rule that they get to just commodify your brain data because that's the way they've operated all the time until now. Right, right. So this becomes something that is illegally implemented across, you know, the globe, the yeah. right? And, and you know, then necessarily, I suppose, individual actors like you, me, citizens, mm-hmm. then have the right to protest. Well, we always have the right to protest, but we we have the, I guess, empowerment to push back when we feel yeah. like those things are being violated and not just yeah. to roll over and take it. Because That's right. You say, no, I'm sorry, that violates my right to cognitive liberty. And you right. want to condition your products? Like, here is the class action lawsuit against that, <laughs> because that's actually illegal. Um, so I just think it it's it's a it's a different worldview. And it's one that, you know, we're, again, through your words, like we have this learned helplessness. We don't realize that we can actually reclaim rights. But here it's easier because we're not having to claw anything back. It hasn't right, happened, it hasn't happened yet, yet. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so it's like we have this moment before it goes to scale to decide differently and to just be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, don't think the same rules apply here because they don't. It's a whole new category of data. It's our brains. It's special you're going to have to approach it differently. So then do you find yourself in this position, right? Because there's this like, you're behind the megaphone. You're like, listen, this matters. And it's going to like, there, we are at a critical junction. There is a point where, you you know, there, there's, I don't want to say there's no turning back, but where it's going to be much harder to turn back. We have to be aware of this now. Do you find yourself ever getting frustrated or cynical when you have this conversation, just like we're doing right now on the platform, and you get feedback of like, you know, just people shrugging and literally being like, meh, 
doesn't apply to no. me. Or like, no, I, don't really- I mean, the, the <laughs> light bulb thing is that people, you know, they're like, what? Okay, good. And, <laughs> you know, um, and then they're like, okay, but this is like, this is happening when? And I'm like, it's, happen- it's happening now. Here's the example after example after example. And they're like, this is real? And then they're like, we'll ban it, right? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> That's like, um, okay, there's a different approach. Uh, but, you know, what do you, what do you think about this? And then they feel, you know, a little relief and optimism and, and they're behind board and they're like, okay, well, what do I do and how do I do it? So I'm encouraged by how strongly people react to it. Good. I hope that um, I hope that once the novelty wears off, that it isn't, you know, normalized, right? Because part of it is I think people first hear about it and they're like, ah, I, I don't want once they like have sat with it and lived with it for a little while for them to be like, oh, okay, it's going to be okay. It's all right. Well, it's that's just the like part that the scares rest of our me day- too. Yeah. It's like, it's almost been, we've been so conditioned for so long. It's, it's sort of like, and I don't want to get political and whatever, but people who listen to my show know my politics. Like, it's like, it's like the Trump playbook, right? Of like just normalizing things that are so out there that eventually it's like, yeah, well, what do you expect? Well, I guess we're yeah. going to live with this I mean, too. I, that's, that's scary. It is scary, right? I mean, normalizing neural surveillance would be a really bad outcome for society. If anybody wants to know what that looks like, they should pick up a book called 1984. Right, right? exactly. <laughs> and the scary thing is, I do think that if we don't do something, we yeah. will normalize it. I, I think 100% that we have to make agree it, with yeah, you. We have 100%, to hundred percent. Like that's. This is why I'm like shouting as you put it behind my megaphone, right? Which is like, wake up, people, wake up. So, right, 100%. So, so tell me, you know, here as we're sort of uh, starting to wind down the conversation, if, if there was like one or, or a few things that were sort of the most important takeaways, the reason that it's so important that people pick up this book and they learn about it. I mean, is, is that it? Like, what is the sort of elevator pitch for why the elevator pitch is? It's here. Our brains and mental experiences are absolutely fundamental to what it means to be human. The technology is already starting to transform humanity and society and our freedom. But we have a moment, literally a moment to get this right. And this book is not just a wake-up call. It's a call to action for everybody to join the conversation and to advocate for our rights to cognitive liberty and to advocate in your own life for the right to self-determination over your own brain and mental experiences. Love it. So listen, I close every episode by asking my guests the same two questions. This is one of those fun examples where what we've been talking about has such a strong an an important point of view that I can already kind of guess what your answers might be. But at the same time, I don't want to box you into that because you can answer in any way that you want to answer. But basically, this is my sort of like weird little thought experiment that I do on the show. I ask every guest to think about the future. And when you think about the future, to do it in whatever context is relevant to you. So it could be very personal. It could be communal. It could be vocational. It could be global. It could be cosmic. It could be, you know, philosophical, whatever. And um, and the first thing I want to know is what is the thing, right, that keeps you up the most at night, which like, hello, uh, the thing that you're most concerned about that you really are like feeling some cynicism or some pessimism about. But then on the flip side, where are you finding your optimism? Where are you finding your hopefulness from from a really genuine and authentic 
perspective. And I know we've touched on this right now, but maybe you can either sort of um, summarize for us the very things that we've been talking about, or maybe there's something else that's out in front that, that would be an answer to that question for you. The thing that keeps me up the very most is what the future looks like for our children. And I have two young girls. I have an eight-year-old and a three-year-old. And I worry a lot. It keeps me up late at night about what's the future that we're creating for them. And where's the space for them for creativity and freedom and to realize and imagine. I worry about that from everything from the use of neurotechnology with them to generative AI and how they'll use it and how they will come to learn and investigate and be curious and discover about the world. Um, so I worry about what's the future we're creating for them and for the rest of humanity. And the optimism I have is really seeing it through the eyes of my children, you know, seeing them continue to experience wonder, seeing them continue to go outside and be, you know, fascinated by the cherry blossoms and delighted by the simple things in life. And so, you know, they, they give me hope, they give me optimism that, um, you know, the future of humanity is in the hands of our children. And those children still are deeply human. And as long as, you know, they continue to draw from that, um, I think they'll guide us in a good way. Mm, yeah, I mean, thank you for that. Because I think that obviously, this could be a, a very scary conversation because I think that by definition, we're entering into this conversation with whatever hindsight bias we have. It's the human condition. We we think in terms of hindsight, right? Our wisdom is developed from our historical experiences in our past. And what we sometimes forget is that like kids or just younger people, their frame is their frame. Like they don't have the pre-existing frame. So they, they can tap into hope sometimes so much easier because they're like, well, well, this is what we got to work with. Let's make it work. Right. right. You know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, and it's, I mean, really like as, as, as kind of dystopian as that might sound, it's actually quite, um, I don't know, uh, hopeful in a way. And I, I appreciate that perspective because I think we sometimes forget that perspective. So gosh, there's just so much. I feel like I could talk to you for hours about this. Um, everybody, the, the book is The Battle for Your Brain. Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology by Dr. Nita Farahani. So Nita, thank you so much for, for being here with us and for sharing these insights. I mean, it's such an important conversation. Oh, thank you so much. I so enjoyed the conversation. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together on Nerdy. When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion Lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through Global Dining Access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chum 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.